turning your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 2, as we continue our study through the book of Job together. Uh, by way of introduction, I honestly feel like the best way to really lay a proper introduction coming into chapter 2 as we began the book of Job last week is really just to, to take a reading again through chapter 1. If you're looking for exposition on that or you weren't here with us last time, that recording is available to listen to. But just for sake of context, rather than me summarize, I think just perhaps reading chapter 1 is the best way to give us a good runting introduction into chapter 2 as we pick up there. It tells us Job chapter 1 verse 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And he had seven sons and three daughters which were born to him, and all his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. And this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, and thus Job did regularly. So we have this picture of this very godly man, godly family, Someone who was blessed by God with great wealth and obviously a large household. Someone who had great renown and all these wonderful things told to us about Job in the first five verses here. But then as we get to verse 6, we see that life starts to take a turn. And keep in mind as we go through these things, Job's completely unaware of what's happening in the spiritual and eternal dimension uh, as he's experiencing what he does ultimately on the personal and the physical level in his life. He's not reading his book. Uh, if anything, if he was the one by the Holy Spirit who recorded these things, uh, he recorded them after the events were over and God perhaps gave him insight to what was going on in the heavenly dimension in the spiritual realm. But why he's enduring it, he has no consciousness of these things, uh, which you can understand makes it all the more difficult for him as he was going through his hardships. And of course, that begins with what we read last time in verse 6. It says, there was a day... When the sons of God, or the angelic beings, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, of course, who is a fallen angel, came also among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge that is a barrier, a protective boundary around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, that is, Strike all of his blessings, the things that he enjoys, his possessions, his business, his wealth, his household, his family members. He says, come against those things. Take them away in some way. And he says, and watch, he says, but now stretch out your hand, touch all he has, and he will surely curse you 
to your face. In other words, the accusation, Job doesn't serve you because of who you are. Job only serves you because of what you do for him. Uh, And you've done a lot for him, no doubt. And of course he serves you. You've blessed him tremendously. But take away any of those blessings or all of those blessings and watch how quickly he will be unfaithful to you and no longer worship you. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has, that is material and physical, is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. That is, don't touch him personally. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. In verse 13, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, they indeed killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and raided camels and took them away. And yes, they killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18, and while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you so as we looked at last time when god granted satan access permissive opportunity to bring attack against job's life and his possessions and that which was material and tangible in his life literally in one day the devil in his madness in his insanity in his his ferociousness destroys his entire business kills the majority of all his servants servants wrecks all of his wealth and if nothing else were bad enough not one not two but all 10 of his children died in one day in one calamity in one accident again the the pain of losing one child is unbearable enough but he lost all 10 of his children in one day and again all these horrific things happened in one day this tremendous tragedy strikes in his life and again Job has no explanation why this has happened. There's no understanding of what's going on. He is only known faithfully serving God, and so much so that God testifies that he's actually bragging about Job, that there's no one like him on the whole earth at that time in regards to his devotion to God and his blameless life and the fact that he served God so faithfully, uh, and yet that's all Job has known, and now all of a sudden tragedy strikes in his life. And verse 20 is the most amazing part of the chapter. It says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground, and that word, and he worshipped. He worshipped. That is, rather than become bitter and angry or raise his fist to God or decide that because all of these horrible things, and indeed they were horrible things, happened in his life that he did not cause. It wasn't as if he made bad decisions And he's reaping consequences naturally of a bad business decision or, you know, he made a foolish choice that jeopardized his children. And that's why they 
you know, all ended up dying somehow. Where none of this has to do. Job recognizes none of this is directly the cause of something he's done, and just instantaneously, all this tragedy strikes in his life. And Job here it says, not understanding any of that, understands the one thing he should do is to process the situation by worshiping God, and demonstrates its great example of worshiping his way through pain worshiping his way through hardship and bitter and hard life experiences and it says that he said verse 21 naked i came from my mother's womb and naked shall i return there i entered the world with nothing at all when i entered the world i had not a possession i owned not a single thing i didn't have a wife i didn't have children i started out in this world with absolutely nothing and he says and ultimately that that's how i'll depart from this world Uh, I take nothing with me. I don't get to take anything with me in the same way I brought nothing with me. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Again, we talked about how Job acknowledged everything that I have in my life anyway really is nothing other than a gift from God. I would not own anything. I would not have any of the relationships, my wife, my children, All of these things are given to me by the Lord. The Lord gave me all those things. And so if he has the right to to bless me and the privilege to determine what I receive in my life, then he says, then ultimately, sovereignly, he has the right to take away at any point in my life anything that he wants to. And so he says, the Lord is given. It's all from him. And so therefore, he ultimately, not me, has the right to determine what remains in my life or what could be removed from my life. And sometimes things are removed from our lives for various different reasons. But nonetheless, Job says, despite those things that are removed or taken away, he says, God still is worthy of my worship. So he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And verse 22 summarized Job's response by saying, in all this, that all that's happened, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong notice in all this job did not sin because a lot of times we find out in our christian walk as we serve the lord that a lot of times what god will allow as a trial in our life very quickly becomes a source of temptation to sin in our life and the devil loves to work that angle in our lives god may permit a trial god allows a hardship a difficulty a tragedy nowhere in the word of god whether you serve god faithfully like job or whether you honestly want nothing to do with god nowhere does god promise an immunity to hardships on this earth to sickness to suffering that that's just a part of life existence since the fall of humanity and sin entered into the garden of eden that this life would have hardships that this life would bring difficulties whether it's health issues or financial issues or job losses or death of loved ones or uh, again whatever financial setbacks part of life is hardships is is challenges you know it's interesting statistically you do a little research You'll find even something very interesting that a lot of times in areas like third world countries and places that where people, we might say, boy, their life dynamic has a lot more hardship and struggle and difficulty. They have a much lower rate of suicide. Now, we would tend to think the opposite. Man, when you're struggling to get by and you're living in poverty and you're wondering where your next meal is going to come from, that people in the midst of those hardships would want to 
check out and become hopeless and, and just escape life, but they have a lower degree of suicide, which makes sense because what they understand is part of life is hardship. And we don't even have the reasons why, but they understand part of life is hardship, and so you don't escape just because life is hard. You, you learn to endure, and you learn to embrace that part of life is hardship, is difficult things. And so rather than those people being ungrateful and angry because they feel they're entitled to this perfect, comfortable, ideal, blessed type of life, their mentality is this is part of what life is. And so they have a, a greater endurance and perseverance to some degree than tragically a lot more developed countries like America and other places where we tend to look at hardship as something something's wrong all the time. Uh, that if there's a trial or a difficulty, we quickly become you know, ungrateful and frustrated. And a lot of that contributes to, I think, a, a wrong mentality that contributes to even a level of the suicide that does happen even in our American culture. Is that people just have a skewed perspective and it, the devil manipulates that for a temptation for people to end their lives and to feel hopeless and just want to check out when things go hard. But I, I love that it says that in these things, Job didn't sin. Did he struggle? Oh, Absolutely. I don't know anybody who can go through hardship and you don't struggle mentally, emotionally. Job struggled, but he never allowed his struggle to be something where he made it a justification to sin or to blame God or to charge God or be angry at God. And that's a real difficulty. That's a real testing point for all of us when we go through hard times because many a times it's a great temptation that when we're going through hardship, we almost feel it gives us an entitlement to sin. Well, because I'm going through a hardship, I have a right to be mean and nasty to other people. Because I'm going through a difficult experience, I, you know, I have a right to, to get drunk or go get a, a load on and get high. Or, you know, or I have a right to, to act out or because my spouse did this to hurt me. Well, I'm entitled. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've watched, even in the church, you know, adultery happens. And then ultimately what ends up happening is one spouse repents and wants to get back and be right with the Lord and the other spouse, ultimately, instead of being thankful and grateful for that and being open to reconciliation, feels an entitlement to go out and do something selfish and, and then cheat back on the other spouse. And it's almost as if I'm entitled to sin because I went through a hardship or somebody hurt me. And I, I'm not diminishing the, the, the hardship and the temptation, but that's not right. We never have an entitlement to sin. Do you understand what I mean by that? We, we don't have that entitlement just because we go through a hard time. And so Job sets a great example here. No wonder God was so proud of his son. I have no one on earth like him. And Job knew this. That's why no doubt he left him be, a, in some ways, if you would, the, the testing ground where he could give great encouragement to you and I on this side as we read the book of Job that the Holy Spirit gave to us. And in a sense, to disprove all of the devil's lies that he tries to whisper in people's ears. Well, yeah, you don't know what I've gone through. I deserve to behave like this. And and, and God says through the Holy Spirit in the book of Job, no, no, you don't. Because in all those things, Job never sinned. He never opted to sin just because he was struggling, and he didn't even charge God with wrong. Well, chapter 2 begins by them telling us, and again, and that's never what you want to read after chapter 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, the angelic beings, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. So notice we're going to see a pattern of exactly what we saw in chapter 1. Again, we're not going to give great explanation to it because we explained a number of those things in our study last time. But here's Satan again with the angelic beings before God's throne, though he's in his fallen condition. 
And the Lord, notice, not Satan, addresses God, but the Lord says to Satan, where do you come from? Now, understand, when God's asking these questions and engaging Satan, as I said last time, it's not as if he doesn't know the answer to these things. God's fully aware he's omniscient. He knows what Satan's been doing. He knows what all the angels are doing, the good angels that are serving his purposes still in a in a healthy condition that weren't a part of the fall that went with Satan when they rebelled against God, just like he knows what you and I are doing. But God does ask questions at times as a way of getting to the surface and bringing to the surface what he's already aware of. So to some degree, as God asks these questions, he's almost indicating to Satan to bring it up in conversation. I'm aware of what you're doing. I know exactly what you're doing. So therefore, since you are going all around the earth, surveying people and looking for victims and trying to pinpoint weaknesses. Again, God's saying, where have you been going? And Satan answers the same way as before, verse 2, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth in it. Again, because he, the Bible teaches, has a degree of dominion over the world system. The Bible says that Jesus calls him the, the, the ruler of this world. First John 5 says that he, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Ephesians 2 says he's the prince of the power of the air. The Bible says in Corinthians that he's the God of this age. And again, why is that? Because when man disobeyed God, when man had dominion over the earth, he, in a sense, when he chose to obey Satan, forfeited that title deed of dominion over the physical earth. In a sense, he judicially forfeited that over to Satan. Now, ultimately, Christ dealt with that and will one day strip out of the hand of the devil the title deed to this earth. But to a degree, the devil does have a measure of dominion. And so his realm of operation is among the earth trying to destroy lives, looking for his next victim, going to and fro like a military surveillance. He's looking at people's lives and measuring them up before he launches his attack. So the Lord said to Satan, as he said last chapter, have you considered, remember that word scrutinized, looked at your strategy of how you might attack my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And then look, God adds this time, and still, and that's a, a powerful statement, and still, despite all he's been through, he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. So take notice, a few things there. God clearly indicates there, as if we didn't pick it up already, that everything that was happening against Job's life was without a cause. In other words, Job didn't cause it. That's very important at the beginning of the book because the predominant amount of chapters all the way to about chapter 38, Job's three counselors who are trying to help him process what he's going through, go through a lengthy process of trying to explain the cause behind all of his suffering. Mainly they're going to say, there's, there's got to be something in your life that's wrong. There's just, there's got to be sin in your life. You had to have made some mistakes that you just didn't address properly. And, and you know, just God's just. And, and he's just, you know, he's, he's dealing with you. And, and, and God says here, all of this has happened in the destructive way in Job's life without a cause. There was no cause specifically of guilt for Job that caused this. The cause was simply there was something going on in the eternal dimension whereby you might fairly say Satan is challenging God's worthiness to be honored. 
Satan is basically saying, look, you're not worthy to be worshipped just because of who you are. People only fear you, worship you, even Job, because of what you do in their life. You're just a big cosmic genie. You're just the, the jukebox. People put coins in, and as long as the right tune comes out, they keep putting the coins in. They keep ser- you don't think people really serve you just because you're worthy or, or that people worship you just because you deserve worship, it's only because of the good things you do in people's lives. It's only your blessings, and that's the only reason they serve you. And Satan, in a sense, in chapter 1, and here again in chapter 2, is challenging God's worthiness to be honored that even Job only worships and serves God due to God's blessings and good health. And really what happens is, Satan is in essence saying, and you'll watch as we go on, If any of that is removed, Job will turn against you. Last chapter, it was any of the blessings, his material possessions, his wealth, his family. If any of that's removed, God, he says, Job's going to curse you. He will turn against you and not follow you or serve you. And you might fairly say, in order to shut the devil's mouth, God allows Satan in this particular situation to attack and to afflict Job to prove the devil wrong. Before all of the angelic beings and before perhaps you know any witness throughout the centuries who have read the book of Job to realize you mean it is possible to say, as Job will say at one point in the book, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And that was Job's perspective. Job wasn't saying, though the devil attacks me, because he didn't know the devil was attacking him and that God was just allowing it permissively. He, he saw it as God is sovereign and God must be slaying me for some reason. And I don't even need to understand it. But though he slay me, yet still I will not stop trusting him and I won't stop worshiping him. And, and the devil here, in a sense, is proved wrong by God's allowing affliction and God allowing the devil to afflict and to assault one of his servants to in a sense silence the devil and verify that he is a God worthy of worship and that people will some anyway they will remain faithful to God no matter what goes on in their life and they'll remain loyal in their love for the Lord so he says he still holds fast his integrity even though, he says, you've incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. So Satan answered the Lord, here he goes, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. In other words, he's saying everybody has their price. I don't believe you yet. Everybody, every man has his price, and anybody's power of self-preservation of their own life is going to rise to the chief foremost concern He says, verse 5, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and surely he will curse you to your face. In other words, Satan says, look, of course he still is willing to serve you. I'll give you that. But every man has his price. And yes, he's lost his family, but he can honestly rebuild and have more children. And yes, he's lost his business, but... He can start another business and get his wealth back. But Satan says, I know what his weakness is. You you let me destroy his health. You let me touch his life, his personal being, 
in a way whereby the thing that typically tends to be one of our foremost concerns is what's going on in our life personally. Because, look, yes, it's hard to lose things. It's hard to lose wealth. It's hard to lose a job. It's hard to lose status and possessions, to lose a home, and and even to lose loved ones. But Job says, but let me strike his health. Let me strike his health. And he says, surely, if you let me strike his health, I assure you that will be the spot where, because every person clings to their health and will do anything to try and keep their health or keep themselves alive because the human spirit of, of survival is so strong. And he says, that will be his weakness. And at that point, at that point, he will turn against you. And so now Satan is presenting this next option to try and, in a sense, indicate that God will not be worshipped if Job's health is greatly diminished or in some way he goes through physical suffering in his health and his body so the lord verse six said to satan behold he is in your hand but notice spare his life again you notice the permissiveness of god all of this is through the filter of god's sovereignty the devil does not have complete access to do whatever he wants this is god's servant and so god even in the midst of this remains in authority over the situation he remains in control he only allows what is in his mind is permissible so he says look you may go this far he gives the devil an amount of leash but he doesn't give him just free reign and we need to always remember that that god's sovereignty even to a degree is still ruling over even the madness and the horrific things the devil does do in our world and the things that he does do in attacking and assaulting people and so here The Lord says to Satan, okay, you're on again. I will disprove you through this. So behold, he's in your hand, but you must spare his life. So Satan, verse 7, went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job, it says, with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Sitting in the midst of the ashes refers to sitting really what would be like the city dump because they they burnt their trash. So the idea is this is where he went and sat in the midst of this affliction because things got so bad. Now, here Job, in a sense now, after everything else, imagine that's just happened, now he has just been afflicted suddenly with an incredibly painful physical situation that is a chronic continuous painful thing that doesn't subside in fact as you read the book of job we know at least that it lasts for months in his life until ultimately god intervenes and as you read the book of job we're told here not only here in uh, verse seven that he was in incredible intense pain it says painful boils We know from other accounts in the book that this also was a condition with symptoms where there was severe itching, where Job was unable to sleep. So there was insomnia and sleeplessness attached to it. And that would make sense to me if he's got boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. If you stand, it hurts. If you sit, it hurts. (laughs) If you lay down, it hurts. When you got painful boils all over your body. We know as well that the sores were running and oozing that he was having tremendous nightmares even when he would sleep. 
that he was dealing with weight loss, chills, fever, diarrhea, and blackened and chafing skin. Now, what the condition was, we can only speculate. In fact, one part, it even describes that his breath was so offensive, his wife would not even come near him. But the indication being that his health was in really miserable shape, and it was chronic, and it was lasting, and it didn't go away. And it was day after day after day, the pain, the you know unpleasant experience of how he's living. It says here literally that he's, he's reduced to the place where he's sitting out at the, the ash heap. Again, a few days before, he was the greatest man in the East. Now he's sitting like a, a, a poor beggar at the city dump with pieces of broken pottery itching or scraping his boils to try and relieve himself and get some kind of comfort. And again, he's not having access to, well, just let's just get him up to Jefferson and get him some real quick. I mean, it's not available. <laughs> there's, there's no modern medicines. He just, he's dealing with this, scraping his own skin just in complete misery. And verse 9, if that were not enough, his wife had an encouraging word for him. She said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, some have said it is very interesting to take notice that the devil killed all of his children and left his wife alive. Perhaps, to some degree, that was the devil's awareness that another way to really damage and destroy Job would to be to influence the thoughts in his wife's mind that would come out of her mouth, that would say things that would just further deflate him in dealing with what he already was. And that, again, we all know, does it not hurt the most when the people closest to us say hurtful things or discouraging things? or speak things into our life. I mean, the wounds of that, right? So who better to use? Oh, I, I, on top of all this, I'm going to use the mouth of his wife to, to say something, to really shoot another arrow right into his liver. Where, where she, and again, I, to some degree, let me say as well, she's been through a lot too, right? I mean, she just lost 10 children. She just lost the whole business together with her husband, and now she's looking at her husband in this deplorable, painful condition and nothing's helping. It's not going away. And so she's looking to think it's inevitable you're going to die anyway. I mean, I mean, why just keep serving God? I mean, you might as well let's just bring closure to it. Why don't you just try cursing God and maybe he'll just kill you and you won't have to keep suffering. But nonetheless, what she says had to be incredibly discouraging to him. She says, why are you still being faithful to God? And why aren't you why are you holding to your integrity? I mean. You have a right to be angry. You have a, I mean, you, why are you still trying to do what's righteous and keep serving God? She says, honestly, you should just curse God and die. Again, in a moment of weakness, she unfortunately lets, I believe, the devil manipulate her mind and the thoughts or feelings or emotions she was having in the moment of her own personal hardship. She spoke some things that weren't real helpful. Certainly didn't help in the situation. And again, it's a good reminder. We especially want to be careful sometimes that we never, in the midst of not only everyday events, but especially in hard times, 
that we don't allow the devil to manipulate our mind or our emotions or thoughts to where then out of our mouth comes something that's really just making things worse for our spouse or worse for someone closest to us. Those are not times when we want to add kind of insult to injury. Unfortunately, that's kind of what she does here. She speaks in a way, and again, I do believe that this was just Satan's influence because when Paul dealt with his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, remember Paul says, I received a thorn in my flesh, and then he called it a messenger of Satan to buffet me. The idea is like, you know, constant punching in the gut right right where his wound was. And that is what the devil does. You know, the devil doesn't just let us be in pain, whether he's causing it or not, or whether whatever the reason, but, he, but on top of it, he, he buffets us and, and continues to whisper things in our ears. Well, if God loved you, why would he let you deal with that? If God was good, why would he allow you to just be in constant, continual misery? And what kind of God is that? And then you, that's how the devil, of course, whispers and tries to make us question and accuse God. It's his tactic from the Garden of Eden, and nothing's changed. And that can come through the voices of others. Now, take notice. The Bible here makes it very evident that at times, and I stress the word at times, the devil can indeed be the source of physical infirmity, of a health issue, of some painful experience, just like some tragedy or personal hardship in a trial experientially. Now, does that mean every health issue Every sickness, every time somebody has a health problem, that it's the devil behind it? Of course not. That's unbiblical. But we do see here and in the Gospels that there are times where there's an unclean spirit, a spirit of infirmity. There are times where the Bible teaches, both here in Job's life we see it, evidence, as well as in the Gospels, where the devil can be the source at times behind physical affliction or a health problem. But that's not always the case. We have to be careful. We don't always want to attribute that every health issue is the devil attacking somebody because that's not true theologically. There are plenty of times where people have a health issue because this is a fallen world. The truth of the matter is, if we were to be candid, everybody's got a health issue. From the day you breathe your first breath, you're dying. Right? It's just the last thing to get you. It is. just the last... For people who try and teach prosperity gospel and health and wellness and, well, if you just have enough faith, you wouldn't be sick. Or if there wasn't some sin in your life, you wouldn't have that illness. You would be able to be delivered from it and that whole kind of thing. The struggle with that is, well, then what did they do with death? Because, see, you can confess it and claim your healing, claim your healing, claim your healing. Eventually, something kills you. Ultimately, that theology falls apart when somebody finally, the final thing finally gets them. Again, I think we should be good stewards of our health, but the bottom line is, to a degree, we all have health issues. It's not the devil every time, but it can be. And it's important for us just to be aware of that, if it's a spiritual attack or what the source may be. Uh, but at times, it's just because we're in a fallen world and our bodies are breaking down. We have you know, sickness and suffering as a part of the curse. The Bible teaches that. And so, but here, this was the case. Job was literally being afflicted by the devil and notice the devil did a good job i mean this was quite an affliction incredible pain that he was dealing with in his life and now his wife says to him why don't you just get it over with quickly curse god and die but he said to her verse 10 
You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And in all this, again, the Holy Spirit testifies this of Job, in all this, Job, notice, did not sin with his lips. I love Job's response there. Notice, I think perhaps this is some indication that Job's wife was a godly woman, that she did love the Lord, certainly being married to him and serving the Lord together with him, because he doesn't say to her, you're acting like a fool, you're a fool. What's the matter with you? You're foolish. He says to her, you're speaking like one of the foolish women. Perhaps in some ways indicating like this isn't, this is not like you. What you're saying right now is you don't usually talk like this. This is your emotions. You're, you're speaking like one of the foolish women in town. Usually you don't speak that way. But he is identifying to her what she has just said. Again, and this I love of Job as well is, you know, in the midst of it, he's retaining that strength as a spiritual leader. That even in the midst of his hardship and his difficulty where he is probably really tempted himself to maybe want to curse God and die. That he realizes, you know what, I don't have the option to become weak-willed just because I'm suffering. I still need to continue to hold the line spiritually for my wife and, and to be the example that God's called me to be. And so in the midst of it, he stays true on track with the Lord. And he, he, he says to his wife, look, look, that's foolish. Your, your reasoning, the way you're speaking is like one of the foolish women. You, you're not thinking correct there. And then he says to her by way of trying to help her process it, verse 10, great statement, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? Again, there's that very humble wisdom. He says, look, we accept good from God. We're thankful when good things come into our life from God. But he says, are we not going to accept adversity? Are we somehow going to think that it's okay for God to do good things in our life? And praise the Lord, he does that, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And he says, we, we like when God does good things, when he blesses us and great things happen and life's going well. But he says, are we not going to accept adversity from God? When adversity comes, are we going to, we are not going to stand for that. How dare you bring adversity into our life? How dare you let some hardship happen or a problem or a difficulty? And, and he says, look, that's immaturity. That's, that's just, that's naive. And honestly, it's, it's quite arrogant towards God, that he doesn't have the right at times in the same way he blesses us. Do we deserve the blessings? Do we deserve the good things? Do I deserve anything that good God has done in my life? Well, of course not. It's all grace, but we love to receive his goodness and his grace. But where we do tend to struggle is with receiving adversity and true humility and maturity in faith says, God, you give, you take away. God, you, you, you bring adversity and allow adversity just like you bring good things into our lives. And we receive all, Lord, and we'll worship you in the midst of all those things and continue to trust you and continue to serve you. I love great, great wisdom there the Holy Spirit gives to us through Job. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? Now, verse 11 introduces us to Job's three friends, and we'll see quite a bit of them in the chapters ahead. It says, now, when Job's three friends heard of all his adversity, so they heard about all the hardship that he had gone through, that he had come upon him, each one came from his own place, that is, they lived in different areas, Eliaphes, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, 
for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. So they hear about Job's hardships, and they all decide, hey, you know what? We, we need to go pay our friend a visit. I mean, he has gone through tragedy, and he's suffering still tremendously with his health. And so verse 12 says, and when they raised their eyes from afar, they did not recognize him. The idea is when they arrived to where he was, he looked sincerely so different and probably so, to a degree, deplorable in his health condition. He was unrecognizable, and that's how bad he looked with the health condition, with these painful boils from head to toe and the peeling and the darkening of his skin and whatever he was dealing with, this affliction. They didn't even recognize him, and they lifted their voices, look at their reaction, and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So as they walk up and they see Job, they don't even recognize him. Ultimately, whether they hear his voice or someone says, that's actually Job over there sitting in the ashes, scraping himself. and so, It says, ultimately, when they recognized that it was him, that they were so overwhelmed with seeing the pain that he was in, that literally they just lost all emotional control. You know, I don't know if you before have experienced where everything within you thinks, okay, I need to be strong. You know, let's, let's use a, a theoretical example, and I've experienced this myself personally and being with people many a times, doing hospital visits, and, you know, there's a tragedy, an accident or whatever, and somebody's in the hospital, and you think, okay, i got to be strong. I'm going to go in there and and you walk through the door, and as soon as you see them lying there in that condition, as much as you want to be strong, you, you just lose it emotionally because it just, it just so rattles you and breaks your heart to see someone in that condition, and you instantly just break down and start weeping or crying because it's just such a moving thing to see someone in tremendous suffering like that. And this is what happened. When they saw him in that condition because they cared about him and it was so bad, they literally, it says, just lifted their voices. They began weeping. And verse 13 says, and so they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now, I give a lot of credit to his friends on the front side here. Because when Job was going through the hardest hour in his life, and they didn't live just next door. In fact, they didn't even live in the same town as him. But literally, from the areas where they were, they heard about his adversity. They heard he was hurting, struggling, had gone through a tremendous hardship. He'd experienced death in his family, loss of his job. Now he's got painful, you know, difficult health issues he's dealing with. That The first thing they said is, you know what? Our whole life should go on hold, pause. We need to go visit him. We need to go spend time with him. And again, I love this because to me, that is the moving of the Spirit of God because the Bible says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, that he draws near to those who are going through difficulty and pain and hardship. The idea is that God the Bible indicates, is magnetically drawn to human suffering. That his, his presence is always with us, but his presence in some way 
becomes all the more ushered in and near when someone is going through a hardship, whether it's grief of, of losing loved ones, as Job was dealing with, or just some personal hardship or difficulty in their life. It's the, the ministry of presence, and his friends understood that. And I think would to God that we would recognize the value of that, of when somebody's going through something hard, it's a ministry of presence. I just need to go be with them. I don't have to have all the answers. I just need to go be with them. Let them know that I care about them. Spend time with them. And I remember many, many years ago on a, uh, it was a Wednesday evening when one of my you know, fellow uh, friends and, and pastors you know, lost his wife tragically, and it was a Wednesday night. And I got word about it probably like around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and I very graciously told my assistant pastor, I need to go be with him. He just lost his wife. Figure out how to teach tonight. And I said, because to me, it is more important to go be with him and to stand by his side and just to show up and to show my face. And it was a three-hour drive one way. But it is more important for me to drive the three hours to go just show my face than it is for me to stand up in the pulpit and teach tonight. So you, you pray, teach something, read 10 chapters and say in Jesus' name, amen, whatever you, whatever you got to do, that ministry of presence is a higher priority to God. And you know what? To be able to walk in and to spend that time for a brief period of time, that's a memorable moment that, that was never forgotten and greatly appreciated. And I didn't go there with anything special to say. It was just the fact... When I walked through, you drove three hours on a, you're supposed to be at church. What are you doing? No, I said, no, I'm not. I'm supposed to be here right now because this, this is where God would want to be right now. And, and to minister to people in that way, you have no idea the power of the ministry of presence. Don't ever negate that. When God gives you that opportunity, seize it. Go be with somebody. Just sit with them. And notice it says, verse 13, they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights in that ash heap. They didn't say, hey, Joe, why don't we find somewhere a little more comfortable, check into a room at Holiday Inn or something. I mean, they just, they, they entered right into his pain. They sat there with him in his grief, in his hardship, in the midst of his tragedy. And it says, no one spoke a word to him. They didn't say anything. It was just their presence. And I tell you, that ministered to Job tremendously. If there's anything I learned over the six years I spent in police chaplaincy ministry when I was doing that back in York while we were pastoring there, it was that reality. It was chaplains that talked a lot didn't last long. Because when you would respond to a suicide or have to do a death notification or show up after somebody just you know, got beat up by their spouse or whatever it was, and people were in utter, complete tragedy— and it was, you know, you, you drove there, you had no idea what you were going to get. And sometimes you'd have family members, all different spectrums of, you know, the situation. There are times I'd drive up and somebody just saw their loved one, you know, shoot themselves in the head right in front of them. And just horrible stuff. But you don't have to say anything. You just show up. And you sit there with them. You let them cry. You, you hold them while there's blood all over their shirt. Or just, they're, you, you just, you just enter into it. That's all you do. And, you know, it's very interesting to keep in mind here, for a week his friends saw it was so tragic, they just grieved with him and spent time with him and showed compassion and love and just entered into his pain, said nothing at all. And do you know when things start to go downhill? You know, right? <laughs> you guys read ahead. 
when they start talking. Because finally in chapter 3, after this, Job opens his mouth. So now Job's got, he wants to get it off his chest. He's struggling, right? He just needs to blow smoke. He needs to just let some heat out. He's got to just say some things. He's the one struggling. When somebody's struggling, my opinion, you're entitled to just blow smoke. That's right. You get the, you're the one struggling. The problem is, is once he starts blowing all his steam and his smoke, and he's saying some things that aren't right either throughout the book, but his friends then go from sympathizing to sermonizing. Oh, well, let us tell you. We're going to give you some good theological concepts, Job. That'll solve your problem. And, and they go from being helpful to being very unhelpful. You know, keep this in mind. When Jesus writes those letters, remember the seven letters in the book of Revelation? And he writes seven letters to seven different churches. The shortest of all his letters is to the church of Smyrna. And the church of Smyrna was the suffering church. The church that was going through the most painful, difficult times. And Jesus said the least to them. It's always been a great reminder to me that the best time to say less is when people are suffering. You don't have to ask questions. You don't have to respond to what they say. Just sit there with them. Let them say what they need to say. Sit there with them. Spend time with them. Offer to pray for them. Those are some of the greatest things. And be very careful of when you start talking and trying to reason out and use cliche statements. Those can be some of the most hurtful, detrimental things when somebody's going through real hardship. So read ahead. Let's stand. Let's pray together.